Thank you for listening to Hope Fellowship Church in Jaffrey, New Hampshire. We're currently going through a sermon series about King David in 2 Samuel. David was a shadow of Jesus, the King of Kings who had come to save us from our sin and offer us eternal life. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hopejaffrey.org. I'm going to begin with prayer, and then we're going to get into, uh, back into our series on David. I will say I apologize for my voice. I don't know if you've noticed. You probably didn't. Um, I've just had this allergies and cold. So I'm going to do my best today to get through today. Um, but my voice and, and uh, sinuses are feeling that. Maybe some of you can, uh, can uh, you, you, you sympathize with me today. You have that? Okay, so let's begin with prayer as we step into this, this message. I, I, I will say <clears throat> I've been... Um, I'm going to be jumping back into David, like I said, and we'll be finishing David over the next couple of weeks, but really 2 Samuel, and then we'll jump into our summer series. Uh, but this chapter, I've been knowing it's coming. Uh, I've known these two chapters are, are, are in the, the slotted uh, schedule, and there's some tough subjects we're going to talk about today, and yet I think it's important that we cover them, uh, and I'll explain that in a moment. But let, let us begin with prayer as we step into this, as I think it's very important God has you here uh, Aaron's already led us in prayer and a pastoral prayer for people at the church here and things that are going on. But I like, just want us to quiet our hearts. It's a rainy Sunday. Uh, and yet, can, can we ask God to, to visit us today, to speak to us in a, in a real awakening in our hearts, that we recognize the gospel today in a different way. And so let's pray for that this morning. Father, we come before you. We step into your house. The people of God are gathered. That is your house. We're in this space, in this place, this roof over our head that keeps the rain away. But God, would your rain fall down upon us? Would your spirit fill us, Father? Would you wash us and nourish us like the ground that you nourish the seed to bring forth fruit? Do that today in our hearts. God, would you help me to be able to communicate the gospel clearly, but your word clearly, Lord, would we not run from sin, but Lord, would we stare it in the face and recognize that you have conquered that. You've given us your spirit, Father, to uh, destroy the powers and the chains of sin and death. Today, God, we come victorious as conquerors. We come here knowing, God, that you love us and you care for us and you are good. And so we pray for these things today, knowing, God, that you're gonna speak through your word. Your word does not return void. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So 2 Samuel chapter 13, you can turn with me if you have a Bible there. We'll be walking through chapter 13 uh, almost in its entirety, and then we'll kind of uh, summarize a lot of what's happening in chapter 14, but my goal is to cover two chapters today. They, they work well together. They work well together. So a few weeks ago, before Easter, Josh was able to give uh, just a powerful message um, on, on the, the storyline there in 2 Samuel of David and Bathsheba and Nathan confronting David in his sin. And him writing uh, Psalm 51 where he, he gives out this uh, amazing uh, con that the Lord does not, um, uh, the Lord receives a broken and contrite spirit and David's forgive, uh, his desire to seek forgiveness, his desire for repentance is, is amazing. And we, it's a powerful message of sin, being caught in sin, trying to cover up your sin, and yet God forgiving David. And yet we find that David at this point is at the height of his empire. The kingdom of, of Israel has reached its pinnacle 
It, it has come to this place where, where David has expanded his borders and maybe only Solomon will increase the kingdom in any way. But this is where really the Israelite kingdom is going to reach its peak. Maybe, maybe for thousands of years, it will never reach a greater, more powerful, influential time than here between David and Solomon. And yet here, we've been on this upward trajectory where David is being hunted by Saul. He's been chased like a dog. He's constantly avoided the temptation to seize the kingdom in his own hand and by his own power. And then finally, he's finally received the throne and he's done a just job leading the kingdom and and really ushering back proper worship into Jerusalem, bringing the Ark of the Covenant, leading the people to give glory to God. He has done a marvelous job. And then we come to this point that Josh led us into this, this moment on the top of the mountain where all of a sudden we start to see the other side. And now we've, we'll start to see, today you're gonna be you're gonna come face to face with the consequences of sin and its darkness. And you're going to see the downfall of David in many ways. And yet we're reminded that God is faithful even to David, even in the middle of some of these grotesque things that are going to occur. And so it's in uh, 2 Samuel 12 that verse 10, Nathan gives David a prophecy. He says, this is gonna happen. And then we're gonna be reading over the next couple of weeks of how this happens. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10 says, Now therefore the sword will never leave your house. 12, 10, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite and your own, as, uh, to be your own wife. Verse 11 says, This is what the Lord says, I am going to bring disaster on you and your own family. That, that is literally going to happen here in this chapter that we're going to read. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, verse 12 says, but I will do this before all of Israel in broad daylight. We're going to be coming into this next couple of chapters where we will see what David tries to cover up, what David tried to do in secret, will be brought before the entire kingdom, and it will cause destruction and dysfunction not only in his life, in his family's life, but extended out to the nation of Israel as many will suffer as a cause of a leader's sin. And so that's what I want to go through today. And again, I don't want this to be a message that is so like down in the dumps for what we do is we look at what sin is and what it does and the consequences of it. And yet we know all along that there, we, we live in a new covenant with the spirit of God with us that has provided atonement for that sin. And so anytime we stare into the darkness of sin, we must recognize that there is a light that is stronger than it. What did we talk about in Easter? The light is... The light shines into the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it, right? And so we have to keep that in our minds. But hopefully before I get into some more of the serious uh, sides of this uh, topic today and before we begin reading, I was trying to come up with a title of the message and I eventually landed on a title that I think many of the kids even will will find funny and maybe some others don't uh, because I think it, it does help communicate what we're talking about today. The title of today's message is we don't talk about Bruno, right? Do you, do you, know, do you know, have you ever seen the movie Encanto? Uh, some of you have little children, you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I'm hearing about that now. And some of you I talked to this morning were like, what are you even talking about? Well, the movie Encanto is a Disney movie and uh, it was, it's really relating around this concept of this family, this magical family. And each member of this magical family has special powers. 
And there's a member of each family that can do a variety of things. One is very strong and one can, you know, make everything turn beautiful into flowers and a variety of things that they have, special powers. They all live in a la casita, a, a, a house that is a magical house. And they live in the center of this village and, and this family is kind of the, the family that everyone looks to and looks at as the perfect family where each member has special powers and they live in a magical house. It seems quite like the dream world. And in this, in this movie, there's a song called We Don't Talk About Bruno. And the whole point of this is because there's one member of the family that you don't know about, and his name is Bruno. He's kind of what you could say the black sheep of the family. And it's the family member that nobody talks about. It's the family member that everybody has cast aside and pushed away and has an agreement among the family that we don't talk about Bruno. No, no, no. You're hoping I start breaking into song here any moment. We don't talk about Bruno, okay? So some of you, it's stuck in your head. And again, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm trying to bridge that gap. The concept of Bruno, the one who was causing difficulty in their family, the one who was telling them the things that they didn't want to hear. And as, a best, as the best result would be, a, the, uh, la abuela of the family has decided that Bruno should go away. Bruno should be cast far away. Bruno himself felt that he was causing difficulty in the family, so they cast him out and they sent him away. And as long as we all agree that nobody talks about Bruno, the family will get along and work perfectly well. But is, is that what happens? No, you actually begin to see the cracks and the fissures in the family and in the La Casita. For the Casita in the house starts to have cracks and fissures starts to be crumbling. The members of the family start to lose their control of their powers that they supposedly have from this magical house. And all of a sudden, there are fissures in the relationships. And the family house and the entire family unit comes crumbling to the ground. But still, we don't talk about Bruno, right? And so until they talk about Bruno, until they bring Bruno back into the family, until they resolve the situation and really what is going on, they cannot receive the magical house again and have their powers restored. And so it's at the end of the movie when they do all that, and I won't give you us. You get the idea. There is something going on underneath the surface. And in this chapter, you're going to see a family, David's family. You could say a magical family. A family, David, the great David one who has uh, this massive family, extraordinary power. He has been anointed by the Spirit of God to be the king and the leader of Israel. And yet in his very own family, there will be many, many different kinds of Brunos. There will be very many different kinds of things that we don't talk about, that we push under the surface, that we avoid and hope that they go away and hope that they don't cause the issues that I hope they cause. For David had this tendency, he already tried to do it with Bathsheba. If we just kill off Uriah, no one will know, right? And this will continue to haunt him over these next couple of chapters. In fact, I was reading in preparing for some of the marriage counseling because there's a lot of weddings coming up here. It's an exciting time of year, but there's a, in the, one of the books we are looking at, there's a illustration talking about how in these marriage relationships, even in your own relationship, if you don't learn to take out the trash, you will have quite a few things pile up. And I like that thought in David's life especially, but here in all of our lives and our relationships before we jump into the passage, if we are not willing to take out the trash, 
that trash will pile up. Eventually, your house will look kind of like a hoarder's episode, right? Where you can do nothing but just seek to escape it and get out. But if you had been taking out the trash in that relationship and addressing the conflict and addressing the situations and addressing the sin when it was small and manageable and able to be held in a nice little bag and brought out to the dumpster and to be taken care of your house, your relationship would be cleaned, would be a place where you could operate and live together in such a space. But if you avoid and you indulge, these things will will fester like a cancer that will grow within you unless it's removed. David gives us a prime example in many situations here with Amnon and Absalom, his two sons, about how not to parent and how not to take out the trash and how to avoid things until it will come and bring almost complete disintegration to his entire kingdom. It first begins with this inability to clear out the sin to confess and forsake it, to address it, to administer justice where justice ought to be administered, and yet to extend grace and mercy and forgiveness where it ought to be extended. This, in very many ways, he seems to remove himself from. He, in David's life here, he has a a sense of, uh, in a sense really, of, of avoidance and absentee parenting and indulgence. We begin to see him avoid situations, like I just mentioned, to be almost this absentee parent who is so busy with the the kingdom and being the king that he has no time for his children. And then ultimately, indulgence. Spare the rod, spoil the child. You ever heard that? Well, this is just a lot of spoiling the child, okay? A lot of spoiling the children and letting them do whatever they want to the point where they absolutely destroy other people's lives. And so we're gonna experience some of these things together as we walk through this. But before we do, I want you to see a family tree. <clears throat> we, uh, Josh and I were talking about this sermon this week and he's like, be careful, you start jumping into the family tree of David and it gets messy really quick. And I started doing that and then I had Hannah make this up, Hannah designed this thing for us and it helps visualize the complicated, dysfunctional nature of David's life. David disobeyed the command of God very early. We alluded to this months ago when we looked at how David took wives. Do you recall how Samuel said to the people of Israel, be careful, for if you want a king to be over you, that king will come in and he will take. He will take your your sons for battle and for his army and he will take your daughters for his wives. David has disobeyed this command many times. Polygamy is not acceptable in the Bible, though God works through it. Despite man's sin, God will work in and through a variety of things. Does not mean he approves of this. He's already set up one man, one woman in Genesis, and he's already established the way that the family's supposed to function. However, David, king there, you see his little kingly crown on the top, he has many different wives to the point where there's a couple passages where we just have this random grouping over in the corner here of concubines, because we're not actually sure how many he had. In many places it said he just took wives. He took concubines. And so these kinds of names, Michal was Saul's daughter who he had no children with. Abigail is the one that we, we feel as if one of his true loves, you could say. That story where Abigail and her faithfulness defends and saves uh, us, uh, David from grave danger. And then the one I'm going to be talking about mostly today is Makkah and Ahinoam. These two kind of there in the middle. Uh, The son of Amnon. 
And then here we see in Makkah, uh, the son of Absalom and Tamar. They are going to feature highly today and in the next couple of weeks. Um, actually, probably next week we'll look at that top there, Bathsheba, Uriah, Iliam and Ahithophel. They are, uh, I've been working on these names, as you can tell. And uh, so those things are in some areas. And then later on from Bathsheba, Solomon, at the very bottom, will become the future king of Israel. But that's a story for another day. So again, I recognize some of the things that we're gonna be talking about today maybe are a little things that, kind of like the Brunos that we don't often talk about at church, and yet it's something that I really feel very important to, and I recognize there's children in the room, and we'll be talking about some things today that I will try to be sensitive to, but the scripture brings them out to us today in a way that it wants us to see the consequences of sin, and it wants us to see what happens when we neglect sin, and we do not pursue righteousness in our lives and in our relationships. So look at uh, 2 Samuel uh, 13 with me, and we'll be running through some of these ideas today. 2 Samuel 13, verse 1 says, Some time had passed. So this is after uh, Bathsheba and, and, uh, and David there. And David has continued to kind of increase his kingdom into a little point where now there seems to be some time that's passed. He has some time on his hands. And it seems as if he's starting to let things loose and fly and it's as if he's grown old and he's done everything he needs to do and he kind of starts to kick back and relax in some ways. And uh, some time had passed and David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. Remember that? Makkah had Absalom and Tamar. They're uh, full sisters and brothers. And David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. So Amnon the son of David is infatuated. Amnon is infatuated with his half-sister Tamar. Verse two, I told you I was gonna be talking about strange things today. Verse two, Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister Tamar because she was a virgin. But it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Verse three, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab. Uh, This is their cousin. Uh, a son of David's brother, Shemia. Jonadab was a very shrewd man, meaning he was wise and cunning, but he was evil. Verse four, and he asked Amnon, why are you the king's son? Like, don't you know who you are? Why are you so miserable every morning? Won't you tell me? He already knows, but Amnon replied, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Notice how he describes it. He doesn't say my half-sister. He says my brother Absalom's sister. Verse five, Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed. Pretend you're sick. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare a meal in my presence so I can watch and eat from her hand. A few things to notice before we keep reading is just this concept there. Amnon is actually at this point the eldest son. So he's the crown prince. He has a lot of a, a responsibility, you could say, in, in the sense that he is the heir to the throne. He's the firstborn son at this time. And so he is the one who would be the heir apparent. Tamar, his half-sister. David is their father, different mother here. Absalom is Tamar's brother. And Jonadab, their cousin, the ones mentioned so far. But again, Jonadab whispering in the ear of Amnon giving him these ideas that are complete, straight evil. But be careful who you're listening to, is it not? I just find it interesting how these two find each other 
Amnon and his evil, Jonadab and his evil find themselves and they speak to each other and they whisper their evil thoughts and intentions. We must be careful who we're listening to, not the, just the words and the thoughts that are within us, but also those who we are taking counsel from. For we don't know what would have happened without Jonadab, but he kind of just floats in here and he'll float into the next chapter as well. And he just often is in these situations and always seeking to cause destruction, but never to be directly tied to it. But uh, 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 sorry, uh, Amnon uses the words, I am in love. We know this is not true. He's not in love. (laughs) Is there a difference between love and lust? For we could say Amnon is in lust, right? He's not in love. His animalistic desires in many ways are controlling him at this point. He is not in love in any way. He is completely in lust. And as we think about these concepts in today's modern culture, we see this everywhere. People constantly calling love, uh, really, sorry, people constantly calling lust, love. And constantly making excuses that a feeling that I have or a desire that I want to act on or live in is love. And everyone ought to be all about love. We see that constantly in today's culture, especially with one of the biggest um, industries in our world at this point, with it, which is the pornography industry. There was so many statistics here that I was looking up on these kinds of things where it, it talks about in the pornography industry. It is so, uh, this, this massive, in, in such a pervasive problem in our culture today. It said 28,258 users are watching pornography every second. It says that $3,000 are spent on pornography every second on the internet. That was several years ago. Some of these statistics are outdated. I can't even imagine what it would be like in 2023. 88% of scenes in pornography films contain acts of physical aggression. Almost 50% of the scenes contain verbal aggression. One in five mobile searches are for pornography. 90% of teens, 96% of young adults are either encouraging or accepting or just frankly neutral when they talk about porn. 55% of adults uh, 25 and older believe porn is wrong, just 55. The rest believe it's good and useful. Teen and young adults, 13 to 24, believe that not recycling is actually worse than viewing pornography. The climate debate and all of those things, believe what you will, but that has been taught to such a way where that is the, the grave moral evil of our time. <laughs> and, and this pornography thing is just something that is necessary. of teens believe porn is bad for society compared to 31% of young adults, 18 to 24, where 51% of millennials believe it's bad, 59% of boomers believe it's bad. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. 33% of women aged 25 and under search for porn at least once per month. And the porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and MLB all combined. It is also more than the combined revenues of ABC, CBS, and NBC. 11 years old is the average age that a child is first exposed to pornography, and 94% of children will see pornography by the age of 14. This is not something that is just around or out there. It's something that is within here all the time in everyone's lives. We are bombarded with it on every screen, on every place, on every direction. It is the, the accepted sin of our society, is it not? 
It's the, the accepted definition of love is lust in our culture. And no wonder we see such a breakdown of the family, breakdown of marriage, breakdown of our society that is breeding out into complete utter violence in the name of revolution. There's violence that is coming in our society, is here now in our relationships, and it is being fueled by pornography. And I'm not standing up here acting as if those in this place that nobody has issues and if you, can't, if you have an issue, you can't receive help. For, there is a wonderful place, the church, to be a place where you can receive help and encouragement and have someone walk alongside you, be your accountability partner, help you. And there is forgiveness and mercy to everyone who needs. And there should be more of that poured out in our society. But what's worse is if we avoid it and act like it's not a problem. And so we must be careful of these things for that's what David does. With his son, that's what David does in this situation. There's this aspect where love and lust are mixed and we get the result of violence. And so let's read on in verse six. We see uh, David will, in, in some ways, indulge his son Amnon and encourages this behavior. Verse six says, so Amnon laid down and he pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my presence so that I can eat from her hand. And David sent words to Tamar and to the palace, please go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. I, what a wimp, okay, <laughs> you know? I, I, we have to, I don't know if I'll get into this after we read it, I just, I need to keep reading, but it's just, yeah, we'll go into it right now. This, uh, he is a complete wimp. He fakes being sick. I love soccer. I'm a big soccer fan, but I often get made fun of. What are you, a soccer player, right? Why? Because they fake injuries all the time, okay? By the way, if you watch NBA playoffs, they do it all the time. Football players do it too. Everybody in sports fakes injuries. Soccer players, just we're really good at it, okay? Uh, but, you know, you fake an injury. This is what Amnon is doing. And yet David is so busy with life, he can't see through that his son Amnon is faking sick, that he needs his, daughter, his sister to hand feed him food? I mean, where is David just saying, dude, grow up, right? David, David was a man who, who lived as a warrior, being hunted by Saul for years, living in the wilderness, cooking over an open fire. Amnon has grown up in the palace. He has been pampered from day one, right? And this guy is uh, getting anything he wants. And to the point where David indulges and spoils his child. Oh, you're not feeling good. Do you need someone to feed you food, right? This is just the most ridiculous thing. And multiple commentators I read, the, read about this pointed this out. At how much of a wimp and a child, a petulant, indulgent child that Amnon is acting like. Yet David does nothing. You'll see that later on as well. David, a man of war, hardship and battle, living on the run, and now he spoils his rotten children when they fake a tummy ache, right? And so this aspect of, we all know this is, is extraordinary. But Amnon will respond and he will spoil really his, his sister and he spoils in so many different ways the very spoiling that he's had on his life. And so we see in uh, verse seven and eight, and then verse nine, it says, she brought the pan to, and set him down in front of him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, everyone leave me. This is verse nine, Tamar's there. And everyone left him. So all the servants leave. And verse 10 says, bring the meal uh, to the bedroom. 
Amnon told Tamar, so I can eat from your hand. This is ridiculous, right? Tamar took the cakes she had made and went to her brother Amnon's bedroom. And when she brought them to eat to him, he grabbed her and said, come sleep with me, my sister. Notice he knows exactly what he's doing. He says, my sister. Verse 12, don't, my brother, she cried. She's trying to reason with him. Don't disgrace me, for such a thing would never be done in Israel. Don't commit this outrage. Where could I go with my humiliation? She's trying to reason with her. I would be humiliated. And you, she says in verse 13, you would be humiliated, for you'd be like an outrageous fool in Israel. Don't do this, you fool. Everyone will think of you as a fool. And me, what would become of me? Please speak to the king, he, for he won't keep me from you. All these things. So verse 14, but he refused to listen to her, and he was, because he was stronger than she was, he disgraced her by raping her. Verse 15, so Amnon hated Tamar. Notice how his lust turns into what he wanted to now utter hatred. His violence led to hatred and anger. Verse 15, so Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than the love or the lust that he had loved her with. Complicated verse, but you get that. The hate that he hated her now was stronger within him than the love that he had lusted after her in the beginning. Wow. Notice it changes in an instant, and he says in verse 15, get out of here, he says. No, she cried, sending me away. Much worse than the grave wrong that you've already done to me, but he refused to listen to her. Verse 17, instead he called to the servant who waited on him, get this. Some of your translations that you're reading from might say, get this woman. And essentially what he's doing is just treating her as an object. Get this. The CSB actually says, just get this away from me. Throw her out bolt the door behind her. Just this object that is to be objectified and used and thrown away like scraps from a table. Just get it out of my sight. Verse 18, Amnon's servant threw her out and bolted the door behind her. Now Tamar was wearing a long-sleeved robe because of this is what the king's virgin daughters wore. Verse 19, Tamar put ashes on her head. She tore the long-sleeved robe she was wearing. She put on her, head, uh, on her hand and on her head and, and went away crying out in mourning, as she should have done. We'll notice how brave that is of what she did. Verse 20, her brother Absalom said to her, has your brother Amnon been with you? Absalom knew right away. He knew exactly what had happened, even though he wasn't involved. He was aware of Amnon and the bad character that Amnon had, and this is exactly what he assumed, even though David was completely clueless. Absalom, has your brother Amnon been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. We'll stop there for a moment. This is the, the situation that I just mentioned in verse 17, this, this feeling where get this away from me. He hates Tamar, this, this uh, sexual lust that leads to, to violence and to anger and this aspect of this cycle that occurs. And yet this horrible, wicked act that he has done he, Amnon, will pay for his sin in one way, shape, or form. In many ways, in fact, the next chapter, you're gonna see him receive the justice that really he deserves, although maybe not in the way that should have been happened. For he will pay for this punishment, this wickedness that he has done. Tamar, and especially even the greater wickedness, wickedness of casting her aside like an object. He, he, he is not someone who is supposed to be caring for and atone for his sin by paying for Tamar's future. It is according to law that he would be responsible to make up for the sin that he has caused by publicly paying for her welfare for the rest of her life. You could say today's modern, like child support, these kinds of things. But this is a kind of Levitical law in a way, and he refuses to do that, and also no one holds him to that moving forward. 
They completely reject the law and forget it and cast it aside. After all, Tamar, what's she worth? Let's throw her aside. We don't talk about Bruno anyways. Just get her to shut up and, and we'll move on, right? This is the situation and we, we're here in this place is horribly, horrible, horrible even to consider. That no one seems to be standing up for her. And yet Tamar, credit to her. Credit to her for she stands up for herself in verse 19. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long sleeve rope. So in a public way, she would have lamented what has gone on and people would then know what has happened. So she laments in a public way, ashes on her head, the mourning of what she has lost. She rips her clothes and people would now know what has happened. It's something to these situation that it would speak even to today's modern movement where often women do not feel as if they can call out to the abuse that's happened to them. They don't feel like as if they can have a voice at all because no one will support them. And yet in this situation, she's willing to say something and she doesn't listen to the lies that, hey, it's your fault, right? How many women have done that? Or how many situations of abuse have we seen, these sexual abuse situations where the woman then convinces herself that it was my fault. If only I had done something different, he wouldn't have whatever, and in here we see a wonderful example of a woman being willing to speak out and to say the truth of what was right and what was wrong. And whether someone will listen or not, this responsibility of saying, no, this is not right. We need to, something needs to be done. And so the voice of Tamar goes out and in many ways becomes a voice of many victims that we see today. And yet the Lord is near to her and I would say even as much as it's hard for us, the Lord is near to someone like Amnon if he was willing to repent and humble. As he is both near to the abuser and to the abused, there is reconciliation in whatever situation. The gospel of Jesus Christ and grace and mercy can be poured on uh, over anything that occurs. And there is always forgiveness at the foot of the cross. And so we see here that what happens almost angers me even more. Look at 2 Samuel 13 verse 21. We'll keep reading verse 21. And when King David heard about all these things, he was furious. And now you know David's character. You've been following David over the last several months. Are you kind of like one of me? Like, all right, David, what is he going to do? You know what I mean? Like David is going to, before he, remember Nabal insulted him and he strapped on his sword and he was going to go and take out Nabal. Abigail forced and stopped him. Here you would assume similar kinds of reaction. Whether it be right or not, I don't know. But we have David, what does he do? Look at the next verse. Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, neither good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he's did. Wait, wait a second, where's David? Well, verse 21, that's all we get. He's angry. And you know what he does? Nothing. You know what he says? Nothing. The silence is deafening. Doesn't do anything. Doesn't try to fix the situation, doesn't hold Amnon, doesn't go to Tamar. Never mentions that David said anything to Tamar. He just does nothing. He's got, he's got other things to figure out. We don't talk about Bruno anyways. We just we put him in the side. We, like, let's just ignore it. It'll go away. It's not how you fix a situation. Right? The tension will be there. And the tension will be fixed. So in a sense, if we don't talk about Bruno, Absalom is about to make sure Bruno never talks again. Right? <laughs> and so look at, look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he disgraced his sister Tamar. Two years later, this is the next verse, Absalom's sheep shearers went to Baal Hazor near Ephraim. Absalom invited all the king's son. He had a plan. 
Verse 24, and he went to the king and said to your servant, has just hired sheep shearers. This was like a big celebration in the harvest culture. Will the king and his servants please come with your servants? We're gonna have a party. Verse 25, the king, David, replied to Absalom, no, uh, my son, we will not go with you or we would be a burden to you. You guys just go and have fun. Although Absalom urged him, he wasn't willing to go, though he did bless him. I think Absalom knew David wasn't gonna go. But he was hoping verse 26 would happen. Verse 26, Absalom says, if not, Absalom said, please let my brother Amnon go with us. Just, you know, maybe if he has time, he'll come with us, right? You'll make him come, right? The king asked him, why should he go with you? David senses something. Verse 27, but Absalom urged him, come on, we haven't gotten together with Amnon in like two years, right? Okay, I'm, you understand I'm adding this in, okay? Uh, so verse 27, so he said, you're like, I don't see him saying that. Okay, verse 27, Absalom urged him, so he sent Amnon and all the king's sons, and all the king's men, and that's what I want to say. All right, verse 28, Absalom commanded his young men, watch Amnon until he's good mood from the wine, meaning until he's drunk. When I order you to strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't be afraid, you know. Am I not the one who has commanded you? Be strong and valiant. Be of good courage, right? It sounds like Joshua, right? And this is exactly what David did. David had his men kill Uriah for him. Let me go have other people do my dirty work because, you know, I'm the king's son. I'm the king, David would say. You take out Uriah for me. Here, Absalom, just like his father, just like son, you servants kill Amnon for me. Okay, verse 29, so Absalom's young men did what Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. And all the rest, king's son got up and each one fled away on his mule. You know, jump in the car, drive away. Verse 30, when they were on their way, a report reached David. Absalom has struck down all the king's son. Not even one of them survived. In response, the king stood up, tore his clothes and lay down on the ground. And all of his servants stood by their clothes torn too. Jonadab, the son, David's brother, Shemiah, spoke up. Here's Jonadab again. My Lord must not think that they've killed all the young men, the king's son, because only Amnon is dead. In fact, Absalom has planned this ever since the day. All right, Am, right? This guy Jonadab's a tattletale. Here we go. Planned this ever since the day Amnon disgraced his sister Tamar. So now, my Lord, the king, don't take seriously the report that all the king's sons are only dead. Only Amnon is dead and no one liked him anyways, right? Verse 34, meanwhile, Absalom had fled. When the young men who were standing watch looked up, there were many people coming from the road west of him and the side of the mountain. Verse 35, Jonadab said to the king, look, your king's son have come. It's exactly like your servant said. Just as he finished speaking, the king's son entered and wept loudly. The king and all their servants also wept bitterly. But Absalom fled and ran away. And went to Talmai, son of Amahud, king of Geshur. It's actually his grandfather. And David mourned for his son every day. And after Absalom had fled to Geshur and had been there three years, in Geshur, that's where his grandfather and his wife's family lived, so he lived there for three years. King David longed to go to Absalom, for David had finished grieving over Absalom's death. So what we have here is the situation is extraordinarily difficult. David does nothing. He calls leaders to do something and no one else does anything. Absalom then eventually thinks he's got to do something or nobody will. Absalom takes vengeance into his own hands, right? This is the thing that David should have taught his sons not to do. For the Lord should have taken care of this, but no, they will take care of it on their own. And out of anger and wrath and vengeance and revenge, Absalom kills his very own brother. And this cycle will go on. And so instead of addressing the situation, bringing restitution, administering justice, taking care of the situation, we now have another murder in their very own family. Absalom won't stand for it. He'll make sure this is taken care of in his way. 
Absalom, and then eventually Absalom is essentially banished. Simply the Bruno that we don't talk about as well moves from Amnon now to Absalom, and he's the one that we don't like to see or talk to. And then we see part two in chapter 14, the situation that occurs. Ultimately in chapter 14, verses one through, I don't know, 22 or so, is this story of Joab sending a woman to trick David into seeing his own sin. David at this point has become a person that you can't simply talk to. So Joab has to come up with a scheme to get through to David, to get him to recognize his own sin, just like Nathan did, right? Nathan went to David, said, hey, there's this guy who stole this sheep and all these things. David's like, that's terrible. Nathan says, you're the man, right? Do you remember that story? He does the same thing. Joab does this, has this woman tell this elaborate story about this injustice, and essentially at the very end, she says again, you're the man. David sees it, however, and recognizes his sin. And he recognizes that he has caused this situation and then he has further exasperated the situation by banishing his son Absalom and not talking to him and acting like the Bruno that doesn't exist. So what does he do? Well, he seeks to find and make it right. So verse 22, sorry, verse 23. So Joab got up, went to Geshur, brought Absalom back to Jerusalem, the king's son. Bring him back. Verse 24, however, the king added a little, little line little line at the end. Okay, Absalom can come back. He can come back to Jerusalem. But what happens? Verse 24. He may return to his house. All right. Good job. But he may not see my face. So Absalom returned to his house, but he did not see the king. He won't see the king's face. I think it is for two whole years, even though they live in the same area. Have you ever, ever held that in your family? The situation that nobody's supposed to look at and see and everybody's supposed to avoid. And we don't talk to that person because of whatever it is. Let's avoid it. David is putting it under the rug. I won't want him to even look me in the face, my own son. So Joab works this situation. He brings him back. And then it says in verse 25, I don't have time to read the rest of the passage really in sense, but it says, no man, verse 25, no man in all of Israel was as handsome and highly praised as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the top of his head, he did not have a single flaw. In a sense, Absalom is this man who's strong and brave and handsome. You'll get how this comes into play next in the next couple of chapters. When he shaved his head, he shaved it at the end of every year because his hair got so heavy for him that he had to shave it off. He would weigh the hair from the head and the five pounds according to the royal saints. He had a lot of hair. Locks of love, you know. In fact, it'll be his downfall later on. Some of you who know the story, you'll read into that. 27, three sons were born to Absalom and a daughter named Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Absalom resided in Jerusalem for two whole years but never saw the king. So Absalom in his heart, he has a son, a son and a daughter and his daughter he actually names Tamar after his half-sister who was raped. But this situation is this grudge that's being held, justice that's not being administered. The situation is being avoided and it grows and grows and grows and eventually David will finally bring Absalom back into his presence after Absalom acts up like a petulant child and sets some fields on fire to get some attention. He then gets the attention he's looking for. He goes to David. They finally, what supposedly looks like, they make up and they make restitution, although no words are spoken. There's no words of repentance. And Absalom's bitterness grows deeper and deeper and deeper. The bitterness in Absalom will grow so deep in such a way that he will lead a revolt and a rebellion against his own father to the point where King David 
has to flee from the city because he's afraid his own son Absalom will come and take his own life. The situation is getting worse and worse and worse. And every step of the way, David will continually avoid, indulge, give, act like nothing happened, and not talk about the situation. Until eventually you'll see it will come back and David will finally seek God for help and pray to him that he would help him and God answers. But up until this point, we don't hear a word from David to God. David acts like nothing is wrong. Keep on trucking. Everybody don't talk about Bruno and it's going to be okay. So at this end, in conclusion... I just want us to think this through as we apply it even to our own lives. I don't think it's difficult to apply this to our own lives, is it not? Yes, it is a storyline that happened thousands of years ago, and yet it's a storyline that has been repeated, I dare say, in probably almost every family here in one shape or form. And you're like, well, not to that extent. Or you're saying, well, our extent is worse. Well, there are shades of all of what we have talked about this morning that you are very much well aware of. There is a dark side of sin that has grave consequences. Playing around with fire, you will get burned. The famous phrase (laughs) that probably every preacher from what seems like the beginning of time has said that, that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and it will cost you more than you want to pay. The destruction that comes from this is horrendous. I don't have time, but I wish I did. Genesis 38, go back. I preached a message several years ago in the life of Joseph about Judah and Tamar, another Tamar who experienced sexual abuse. Do you you know that story? (laughs) Genesis 38, I challenge you to go look at that. For Tamar, though she experienced grave injustice by the hands of Judah and others, she is welcomed into the family line of Jesus Christ. These people, the Rahabs, the Tamars, they are not rejected and cast off. And even the Judah who repents from his sin becomes the lion of Judah, the tribe that is most loyal to King David and the future coming Christ that we see. It's an extraordinary storyline that all hope is not lost. Some of you have been through situations that I tremble to even think about. I've never experienced something so difficult, so painful, so hard. And I know I said I was going to talk about some challenging things today, but I don't want you to leave here thinking, well, there's no hope. They did it back then. There's hardship then. There's hardship now. What, what do we got to do? I'm just going to throw in the towel. No, rather, there is a different king. You, we're going to sing a new song to close <clears throat> tonight. Sorry, not tonight. This morning. We're not going to go that long. <clears throat> I, I'm debating because I have Genesis 38. I'm like, we could go there. We're not going to go there. But there, there is a king. There's a new song the worship team wanted to sing. We're about to sing it in a moment. But the, the reason I, I've been thinking through that is because the title is There Is a King. And we've been talking about a king, David, who is a type of Christ, but he is not the Christ. He, David is not your savior. Right? Your husband is not your savior. I am not your savior. You look around in here, and these people are not your saviors, right? We will let you down. We will cause issues and difficulties to fissure within our relationships. There will be challenges as a people of God who are seeking to be sanctified by the Spirit and to put off the old man and put on the new every single day. And so there will be hardships and pain and situations that seem unbearable, but God has given us a new king to look forward to. 
I cannot promise that you will always receive justice for the wrong that has been done to you on this earth now. I pray for that. I hope for that. But we can promise that all things will be made right. That one day, he will return. And there's a different king who will wipe away every tear. The Tamars in the room that have tears crying, rolling down their face. The, the, the people who have been ignored by the church, pushed aside and silenced, their voices will be heard one day, whether it is in this life or in the one to come. Those who have committed grave evil like David can be forgiven. A broken and contrite heart, the Lord will not despise. He is there restitution, reconciliation can be made. Of that, I am certain. Listen to the lyrics of the song we're gonna sing here in a moment. All our worship will belong to him forever. Death is conquered and our savior holds the keys. There is a name that reigns above all others. Jesus Christ, the king of kings. And listen to this, it it won't be long And we will behold him. Every tear he'll wipe away. We'll be at home and the war will be over. Soon we will meet our Savior face to face. Revelation 21. There there will be a day where the King of kings, the Lord of lords, a king in the holy city of Jerusalem, who is prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband, will come down and unite with her. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. I want you to be encouraged today. There is hope for victims. There is hope for abusers and the abused. There is hope for us all because if there's hope for me, there's hope for you. And it's a hope because there is a different king and a different kingdom that we're a part of. And that kingdom is governed not by the law and justice and a hard fist, but by grace. There's grace for everyone. Grace that is greater than all your sin. Every bit of it. There is grace enough for us all. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you today even talking about really tough stuff. I find it difficult to talk about, Lord, but Lord, thank you that you have presented your Holy Scripture to us to expose what is in our heart and call us to cry out for you. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you, God, for your grace. Thank you, God, for your love for people like me. That you can love me, you can love anyone. Thank you, God, for your grace, for your forgiveness, for your mercy, for your love. Your love that comes out to us, a love that says I'm sorry, a love that says that you're forgiven, a love that says, Lord, there's a new way forward. There's a hope that you're making. You're, 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 you're bringing a res- restoration to a fissured relationship. You're bringing reconciliation to our hearts who have been cast aside from you. God, you are here and you are alive working within us, in our marriages, in our families, in our churches, in our communities, and in our nation. You are here with us. You are working for us and in us. And we are not giving up. We are trusting you and walking in faith, believing God that you are restoring what was broken. You are wiping away the tears that have been shed. 
Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for being our king, our perfect king, our Lord of lords, and our king of kings. In Jesus' name.